0: This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, self-compassion researcher Kristen Neff is joined in conversation by CIIS faculty Michael Klein to discuss the power of self-compassion. This talk was recorded on February 17, 2017 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.
1: I would lo- I would like to welcome you here. Thank you. And uh, you know, I was thinking of it as getting ready for the talk. And I have been here for this is my 23rd year of teaching. And of all the things that I have come across, yes. and of and, and the the audience here, there's a wide range of trying everything under the sun.
2: Yes. Uh-huh.
1: I, I think the work that you and Christopher have done is the best articulation of the vision of CIS. Oh, I think I, I shared that with you last year when yeah, you came. Yeah. That the, 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 mm-hmm. the elegance of bringing together the wisdom of the East mm. and the practices with psychology mm. in, in a way that is seamless is uh, an, an evolution that when I started here I never imagined in my wildest dreams. Mm. So I, I thought I would start So in doing this. So I've taught many, many classes, courses here in this room and workshops. How
2: many here have ever received a grade from Michael? Please raise your <laughs> hand. Okay. They're on that side. They're starting to keep yeah. away from you. All right.
1: And, um, but I've never been an interviewer like this. So it's like going round, round, like uh, questions. But, but start just saying a little bit about... Self compassion, and for you, mm-hmm. what 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 is self compassion, and how did you come up with the elements that you put in it?
2: Right. Okay. So, um, you know, first of all, I, I didn't invent the idea. <laughs> Some people aren't you the person who created self compassion? It's like no, I think it was around before me, and um, obviously, it's it's I think it's a any any great. Uh, Any of the great therapists worth their salt, Baslow, um, Freud even, uh, Rogers, all all these people, self-compassion was actually a theme. It just wasn't articulated using those precise words. Carl Rogers got pretty close with unconditional self-acceptance. But, you know, so it's it's been around, um, and certainly it's very much part of the Eastern Buddhist traditions where I came across it. And... um, So I learned about it through writers like uh, Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfield, Insights More, My Tradition. Um, But I think maybe, you know, if I can claim with a contribution I made, um, because when when I I decided I wanted to do research on self-compassion, I had been practicing it, I realized that there wasn't a clear-cut definition of what it was right? Uh, How is it different than just compassion for others? And what is compassion anyway? And there wasn't even a really clear-cut definition of compassion, let alone self-compassion in the literature. So I really just, based on my own experience, what I felt were the most crucial elements. The most obvious one, kindness, being kind, warm, supportive, caring, as opposed to being harshly judgmental. That's kind of the most obvious element of self-compassion, the one people think about. But I realized that, um, so that's actually, if you want to go co- going back to the timeline of when I was coming up with my definition, that was there from the very beginning. But then I realized that you had to have this sense of common humanity because I was very I was always really struck with the question of what's the difference between self-compassion and self pity. You know, and in Buddhism of course, pity is the near enemy of compassion. You have to be very careful. So what's the difference between being kind to yourself and just wallowing, oh poor me. And um, I knew that, well, and I, I'll tell you a little secret. I don't write much about this, but it was what it was more than just common humanity. I was really trying to tap into interconnectedness. Interbeing, I actually wanted to call it, because I was reading a lot of Thich Nhat Hanh at the time. Um, that it's relating to yourself from the perspective of the larger interdependent whole. Not taking yourself so personally. Yeah. So that's really what I was pointing to. I use the term common humanity because it's more easily understandable than interbeing for most people. And then, so I really thought I had it there, you know, kindness, common humanity. But then I realized you have to have mindfulness. I was thinking of mindfulness here and, you know, compassion there. But actually at the root, the core of compassion it has to be mindfulness because you have to be able to open to your pain in order to have compassion, right? It, it's like, it's it's foundational. You have to be able to turn toward it, have courage, and open to it before the whole thing can even arise. So I added in that third element. And I'm pro- I may, some people argue that I'm missing one.
1: Well, that's what I was just about yeah. to ask is, mm-hmm. are there any that you, like almost put in and chose not to?
2: Well, so Paul Gilbert and I have been having this discussion. He really thinks motivation should be part of the discussion. And we've been having a discussion. I I would like to have more because I think it's an interesting question. So in compassion for others, typically the component of motivation to help alleviate suffering is part of the definition. And self-compassion is embedded in kindness. Right, being kind to yourself, what, what do I need, caring for yourself. But I think um, the slight issue with self compassion, alleviating your own suffering versus other compassion, is that we aren't, na- we don't have, I don't have the instinctual desire to get rid of your pain. So if I actually act to get rid of your pain, I'm doing something kind of altruistic. But as, as biological organisms, we do have the instinctual desire to get rid of our pain. That's called resistance, right? So I think I I toyed with it a little bit, but I felt that the desire to alleviate your own suffering in a way is kind of, you know, the problem is how you go about alleviating your suffering. All people want to alleviate their own suffering.
1: Right, I mean, it, it arises naturally.
2: It arises naturally. When
1: your awareness of suffering and the connection with the Western view of defenses that, that the mindfulness of suffering is really the work of working with defenses.
2: That's right. right. Yeah. But so so that's my reason for not having motivation as a fourth element. I slip it into self-kindness. Right,
1: right. kind of with the mindfulness. You have the mindfulness and suffering together. You're like a yes. twofer. Yes,
2: that's, that's right. right. That's right, right. exactly. Yeah. But I'm open. You know, I think there's a, there's a lot of different ways you could approach it. I just know that it works. It's right. easy. It's simple. People get it. They can practice it. A lot of things use the three components for writing, for the self-compassion break. It seems to be get the job done.
1: As I see and work with people and articulate it uh-huh. and the self-compassion, and, and not so much in the people I work with but my own practice, yeah. uh-huh. I, I, I would add a fourth element, okay. which is a discernment.
2: Ah, a discernment. Uh-huh. Right, because mm-hmm. there's a sure. place that, that's yeah. very much
1: in the protocol
2: uh-huh.
1: and comes later in the protocol yeah um but a place where people get confused
2: yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah i would i would agree that discernment is is important um and also the difference between judgment, harsh judgment mm-hmm. and discernment right know, constructive judgment um yeah that's interesting if you if you had that fourth afford- i think it would be a little too long and complicated, but I think theoretically I could go for that because wisdom—wisdom yes. wisdom is definitely part of compassion. I think that's actually, believe it or not, embedded a little bit in common humanity. In um, the way I see it, so I see—I see kindness as the heart, the, the the opening, the warmth. I see common humanity as the wisdom, the perspective that allows you to see the interconnected experience of self and others, and the causes and conditions which give rise to mistakes, failures, etc. So it's kind of embedded in there. And then, of course, mindfulness also has some perspective taking. But yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll go for okay. that. All
1: right. <laughs> um, how did it get from you being an academic Yes. And researching it to where it is now where there's an institute yes. and teachers and a training and a protocol and now a protocol with adolescents and yes. more research and
2: well I have to I have to I mean Chris Germer is really responsible for that. So we were actually we went to the first Mind and Life retreat for scientists that they held. I think that was back in two thousand eight or something. It was the very first one and we were so excited. And he gave me, I didn't really know him, but he offered to give me a ride um, to go to the, the retreat. And, uh, you know, Kristen taught a lot of workshops because he was one of the big people who brought meditation into psychotherapy. And he said, you know, Kristen, I love your work. It's great. And he knew I was a practitioner. So he knew I, you know, it wasn't just coming from my head. So you really need to figure out a way to teach people how to be self compassionate. And I just said, are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, a nice idea, but I have no skills in that area. And I, you know, I didn't even imagine that I could do such a thing. And so but then he said, well, why don't we? try to teach a little workshop and just see what happens. And, and, so, and it's been a beautiful collaboration. Um, but was, I really have to give him the credit for being the, the drive of developing the protocol. And then the center, and it just... And he's also, the beautiful thing about Chris is he's very open-minded, and he said, Kristen, we will never, ever lock down the protocol. Every time a teacher says... This would be better if you changed this because what I found when teaching is la la la. We go ahead and change, change it. it, and that's why I think it's I think it's pretty good now because it's been continually refined and honed
1: and honed right.
2: based on the experience of hundreds of teachers. So, so yeah. now I mean o- over
1: the years I have taught many many different things and seen many different manuals and tried them, yes. and right. most of them I take the bullet points uh-huh. and then make up my own. Yeah. And and with a lot of parts of this, mm-hmm. it it, it kind of comes right off, yeah. because it's so well put together. And the the and, and so do you, do you know, do top down learning, bottom up learning, mm-hmm. right? So I I was thinking of this, and I've never, I mean, we we're talking a lot, but I had this conversation, the the bringing together of little bits of discussion of a point, Uh but most of the learning is Mm bottom-up. Most of it is just letting the experience unfold. Mm -hmm. And and was that, I guess, how much was that design, the back-and-forthness of it?
2: Well, I think over the years, it's gotten more and more experiential, the program. Uh So pretty much the first session is pretty conceptual, laying the foundations. The second one... A little less so, and then you're just pretty much in practice. Right. Um, yeah, I think both, both Chris and I are long-term practitioners. I mean, this comes from a place where we live and breathe this. This isn't, this isn't an intellectual exercise at all, really. Right. It's almost like the intellect is added on afterward to try to make sense of our practice and then be able to teach it to people so that they can experience it as well. Um, But first, if if any of you had been at the very first workshop, actually the first version of the mindful self-compassion program we taught at Esalen, (laughs) uh, there were 14 people who signed up for the workshop, and in Esalen they have the policy that in the first two days you can um, leave and change courses. Fully a third of the of our fourteen people left, <laughs> so it's gotten better since then. I promise, you know, because at first we just we just tried to explain everything and they had all the science, and we just it was a little more top down. And then every time we could let go of something, we do, and it's better because of it. But somehow, somehow the the conceptual frame is there. It's just a little more in the background as opposed to the foreground.
1: There's a making space for the practices to take shape inside, yes. right? And and that's the part that I see a lot of different models mm-hmm. trying to do, mm-hmm. and there, there's enough of a focus on how do we relate differently to our own experience mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and a softness around it. Mm-hmm. And, and so I also think of the balance between the masculine and the feminine, yes. yeah. yeah. And, and which is similar to the top down. And, and, and just to explain, the, the, as I work with people, the, the cognitive models of psychotherapy is pointing something out so that people can get it. Yeah. And, but but the, the legs, when someone gets it from inside yeah. and it just arises, yeah. it has so much more magic to it.
2: it and I'm so lucky, I can't tell you, as an academic, to be able to have this as my work, Three out of the four courses I teach are in mindfulness and compassion. And I, about an, I, t- I lecture for an hour, and then we do an hour of practice. So to be able to, for my students to also have that, and for me as a teacher to have that, it's just, it's a I can't imagine being any other way at this point. And, and, and you,
1: so you went to UC Berkeley,
2: uh-huh. and,
1: and you chose to be a researcher and n- never became a clinician.
2: I do not have a degree in psychology, <laughs> Edu- <laughs> educational psychology. I studied moral development. Actually, was my field, so I was a developmental well, psychologist, psychologist, but it wasn't clinical at all. Aha!
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, well, human
2: development. So um, I, you know, I, 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 was always interested in psychology. I wanted. To, I was thinking about being a psychology major at UCLA. This is how shallow we are as youths. Everyone was a psychology major. Yeah, I wanted to do something different, so I became a communications major. I don't know what I was thinking. I wasn't thinking much. I was an undergraduate, and then because I wasn't a psychology undergraduate, I couldn't go to psychology as a graduate, but I could go to educational psychology, and that's kind of the story.
1: And do and you regret it?
2: No, I don't, actually. I, you know, it's, it's weird. I think Chris calls me an honorary clinician, you know?
1: Uh, I, I might even say more than honorary. Well,
2: exa- I, I, I actually think, because Chris is a clinician, we're right. a great blend, but in a way, my mind wasn't colored by theories of this stuff. It really came from my practice and kind of, you know, knowing some, but There's a way in which it could be kind of fresh, Uh because I wasn't thinking. Well, what would what would Rogers have said about this? Or you know, well, Maslow said in that book that you know, because I'd heard of these names, but I hadn't really studied them. I actually came to them afterward.
1: I mean, I have a sense this doesn't happen now, Mm -hmm. but at first, when you went from just teaching academics to Mm -hmm. touching people's hearts, Mm -hmm. I mean, it can get messy. In a Beautiful way, but did, did it ever, did you ever feel out of your league or over your head with all the things that came up?
2: Yeah, see, again, I think that's also one of the gifts of the fact that I'm not a clinician, is that I never designed the program to be therapy, right? So it wasn't designed as a space where people can healed their wounds even though it's incredibly healing of the wounds but it's that wasn't the intention like let's talk about the issues and you know your past or how this is playing out um because I really wanted to reach the masses like the average neurotic I call them people like me right just people with their issues but maybe who aren't clinically depressed or don't have bipolar or eating disorder but they're just you know they suffer like like everyone suffers Um, and so I think the concept of backdraft, which we talk about, I'll talk about it tomorrow, it's, has gotten um, much more uh, important to me over the years, realizing that the people who don't speak up are the ones that are having the reactions so they put their hand on their heart and it's like, oh my God, I feel scared, or I feel self-hate, or this reminds me of you know the fact that my mother didn't love me, or whatever comes up. So now I, I um, acknowledge it more. Now, even if I tell, like, give, like a 45-minute talk in public, I'll say, like, put your hand on your heart. And if it didn't feel good, that's okay, too. So that's how I, I've kind of become the more honorary clinician, realizing people's experiences can be really shaped by whatever they have going on in their past or psychologically. I don't know. I, I like the fact that this is designed for the average neurotic, which is, <laughs> you know what I mean? The... the for human suffering, and then for people who are, you know, not not, not that I, it's even, I even like the fact that I'm not dividing it into health fevers. Well, actually, I just did divide it, didn't I? Major depressive disorder, and how does this work for them? I was just going for the people I knew, which are people like me, the average neurotic. And I think that makes it more generalizable, but I think it could be, we talked about this, could be maybe yeah. tailored for people. Yes. Um, a little slightly maybe slower approach, slightly different approach for people who are really struggling with particular, you know, mental health issues.
1: Right. I mean, what I see mm -hmm. a significant percentage of people in my classes are also in psychotherapy. And it's a great adjunct that the skills of relating to experience with more kindness and the part of noticing common humanity, so it's less personal and there's less shame, yeah. are so potent with such a wide range. Mm-hmm. That, yes, I, I would agree with that for the more serious mentally ill, mm-hmm. um, but there's a really wide yeah. range that it's, it's, it's very therapeutic. And you were saying, so, so the backdraft is the focus on the resourcing And it's something as I Mm -hmm. train therapists, we do some, Mm -hmm. but the scaffolding of going through and giving people a range of choices so that they become over the eight weeks less scared of strong emotions or negative voices. Right To me, that's I, therapy. I,
2: does anyone here know what backdraft is? Should I explain it? Okay, so we're kind of being...
1: Get, <laughs>
2: yeah, for a few people who don't know this term. So basically, it's a brilliant term Chris Germer came up with. So backdraft is a firefighting term. So, you know, when you go to a house on fire and it's, and you open the doors of the house on fire, the firemen don't do that because if you open the doors, oxygen rushes in and the flames rush out. And it's a very good metaphor for what often happens with self-compassion practice because we have a lot of suffering in our hearts. We've closed the door of our hearts to protect ourselves. We've had to. We've kind of shut down and, you know, we're kind of in this, this mode. And you do something like this, and the doors of your heart start to open, the kind of the love rushes in, and then all the old pain rushes out. Right. And so what it can feel like, it can feel like at first, like, oh, I'm doing this wrong. i put my hand on my heart, and I feel angry. What's wrong with me? Um, or a lot of different feelings can come up, but it's not always the love that's felt. It's actually the pain that's hidden inside that's being released that's felt.
1: And can I, I find inter- it, you, interrupt for a yeah, second? Mm-hmm. So, and th- this is for all the clinicians and, and my former students here and current students, is that as you do the practices, yes. you're letting go of some of the defenses. Yes. Uh-huh. And so something opens. Yes. And so a lot of it is resource building so that you can soften the defenses yeah. safely.
2: That's right, yeah. But you know what's remarkable is I find if you just tell people, hey, listen, this is normal. It's actually a good sign. I, I love imitating Chris. My, my partner, my colleague Chris says, at first it feels like kaboom, but eventually it becomes kabloom. <laughs> It's a good sign because it means you're healing, right? You want, the, you want the air to get in. You want to let it out. You know, if you, if you keep it, the doors of your heart closed, you'll never heal. So it's a good sign, but it can be painful. And for some populations, it can be really painful, so you have to respect it, go at your own pace, let yourself be a slow learner. But as long as you reframe backdraft from being, you know, oh, one more thing I'm bad at, I'm bad at self-compassion too, to being, oh, okay, I see, I'm letting, I'm letting the pain out. That's a good thing then it seems people, I've, I've been, I mean, touch wood, Chris and I have talked about tens of thousands of people at this point. We've never had a serious incident. You know, it's really remarkable. It's really and I remarkable. Think because we resource people and we say this may happen, here's what you do if it happens, you know, it's just, it just normalizes it.
1: Um, and, and I've had time and time again, many people that have been to lots of different workshops and in lots of psychotherapies, Mm -hmm. and as soon as I define it, they're like, oh, I never, no one ever pointed that out. And it reframes the relationship to it. That's right. And as long as there's enough, this is the titrating, right, so that there's more resourcing than opening.
2: Yes, yes. The other thing Chris and I we always talk about um, is as a basic principle of self-compassion practice is this principle of opening and closing. That's something we've really emphasized over the years, right? So, and because that's really what self-compassion is—it's a practice of opening your heart, opening your heart to pain, for God's sake, you know. (laughs) So it's it's kind of it's big stuff, and so you really want to honor your natural instinct to open and close. So you open. And stuff starts to rise like, whoa, it's a bit too much. You allow yourself to close when you need to close. You respect that I don't want to overwhelm myself. Part of caring for myself and asking what do I need, sometimes I just need to tune out for a little while or watch, you know, that third episode of Game of Thrones if I'm feeling overwhelmed. And the amazing thing is, if you give people the conscious choice to close, not as an unconscious defense mechanism, but as a, wow, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm really going to choose to give myself what I need right now, which is to close for a while. First of all, it's temporary because you've done it with consciousness. You aren't just having creating an unconscious habit. And you still have the element of care that's surrounding the decision to close or to space out. And it's amazing how it seems to completely alter the meaning of the experience of closing. Closing doesn't become bad. It's just taking care of yourself. And then people can go at their own pace. I think that's why, ultimately, the program's safe, because we tell people that very first thing, you know, when they come through the door.
1: Right. And and the... I would go even further that closing is good.
2: Closing is good. That it's
1: skillful. It's
2: skillful. And and yeah, this is it where be the skillful, can yeah. be,
1: this is where the discernment yes, comes in. Yes, that's right. Right. Yeah. The the discerning right. mm-hmm. well, what is it that's skillful? And which is the uh, a a Buddhist term. Yes. You know? yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but but oh, what know. is it that I need right now yeah. in terms of my long-term well-being? right i had i had a client many many years ago before doing it and, and his initial <coughs> definition of self-compassion was I'll eat ice cream
2: yes <laughs>
1: <laughs> which w- was not a yeah. self-compassionate act yeah. because then it would lead to self-criticism yeah. but like didn't have that idea yeah. of listening and knowing when to close mm-hmm. and knowing when to move forward mm-hmm. so uh, you know, you mentioned motivation earlier uh-huh. A place where a lot of people get caught Mm -hmm. is that if they give up the critic, Mm -hmm. they'll become slugs.
2: Yeah. It's the number one, actually some research suggests it's the number one block to self-compassion. As people are afraid it's going to undermine their motivation, they'll lose their edge. They need to be tough on themselves to drive them forward. Um, Of course, all the research shows that's completely wrong. It's actually the opposite. (laughs) (laughs) Right. <laughs> but um people don't know that in our
1: society and it, it, it's something it's a piece, and so I, so I, i've now uh, taught the course twenty times or something like that, and each time I teach it, I get to relearn it yeah. Yeah. and 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 deepen my own practice of it yeah. and A part as I reflect on it and thinking about coming here and talking about it in this setting uh-huh. is that even after many years as a meditator, mm-hmm. many years of studying all these different models of psychotherapy, mm-hmm. uh, going through the uh, compassion training at Stanford, mm-hmm. the, the connecting the other motivation to values is something that I had not articulated inside myself. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering how you and Christopher, and, and so the there, there's, there's a part of bringing in acceptance and commitment therapy. And, and I appreciate that you uh, referenced Sean Hayes mm-hmm. in, in the protocol. Steve Hayes. Steve Hayes, okay. okay. Um, so I know a little <laughs> bit about therapy. <laughs> but but um, uh, How all that came together.
2: Well, so, so this whole issue of compassionate motivation was, it's, it's like, that's the exercise I love teaching the most. And so the story is, for, for years, I knew that I wanted to help people learn how to motivate themselves with kindness as opposed to harsh self-criticism. So, you know, I had different versions of the exercise we have in our program. I'll teach it tomorrow where, you know, um, I try to get people to move away from the self-critic and just talk to themselves like a good supportive friend and, you know, do all that. And it actually, this is where, um, it's not actually, except it's a commitment therapy in this exercise that's a big one. It's IFS, Internal Family Systems Therapy, Dick Schwartz's work. And I happen to start going to an internal family systems therapist myself for my, I do go to therapy, so maybe I'm more than just an average neurotic, I don't know, but, so I, so I have learned a lot, and I really realized that what I was missing, it actually got so bad, Chris said, Kristen, we just, you got to drop it, it's not working, it's been years now, it's not working, it just wasn't gelling, the exercise wasn't, the compassionate motivation exercise it's been worked with, he really said, Kristen, drop it. Really? And I I didn't give up. And then so my internal family system therapy did the parts work about honoring and really honoring and being grateful and seeing the value in talking to and listening to each part. So the only way it works to move from self-critical motivation to self-compassionate motivation is to listen to the self-critic. What are you afraid of? How are you trying to help me? Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for all your hard work and effort. And so now that you've been heard, you don't have to shout so loud. And can we also hear another voice, another way to motivate you, which is this kindness, this caring, kind of like the, you know, unconditional parental type of motivation, unconditional loving motivation. And it wasn't until I added that piece in that the whole thing gelled together. And then now it works beautifully.
1: Now it works beautifully. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's one, cause I'm, I'm, you probably, I'm trained in IFS. And oh,
2: yeah, you know, yeah, Dick gets credit for that. We yeah. actually reference him in the manual yeah. on that exercise. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And, and use it. And that's,
2: a, that's a self-compassion therapy if there was one. That is yeah. a
1: self-compassion therapy. And the, the, this is where, so we were talking b- before, and the idea of um, lengthening the protocol yes. because that is such a precious exercise that has so much. It is. And it's one that people could do, Two or three or four times, because finding both validating the critic, Mm -hmm. but finding that other voice again, the bottom up part Mm -hmm. that it comes from inside. Mm -hmm. And I can see it when people in the class get it. Yeah. And you know, just and then it like it it seems like a, a corner gets turned.
2: Yeah, it is a huge corner, actually. Yeah, and I mean, I, I do agree there's a lot in the program, and ideally it would be stretched out, so it's kind of a matter of trying to find I that right balance. I think it's pretty good balance right now, but I think you could do a second round much slower and go much more deeply and repeat things. Yeah, no, I think so.
1: Wait, you, so you were talking, I mean, one of the things I'm aware of, because we're at CIS, and bringing in, it, it, it's both the spiritual, the psychological, the personal.
2: Yes. Uh-huh. Where...
1: Which of the practices do you use yourself or use yourself the most?
2: At this point, um, probably I don't. I don't follow the exact protocol of the exit, you know, because it's a little more um, internalized, internalized and natural. Um, but probably the practice we call soften, soothe, allow, which is a really a combination. It's a dance of mindfulness and compassion. I mean, mindfulness is in compassion, but mindfulness of Kind of the external experience right. and then turning inward. And so just labeling and then finding finding emotions in my body and then working with them and sticking on their trail as they move and transform and move through my body and, you know, do their thing. That's probably what I do the most. But I just try to embody compassion. Uh-huh. You know? It's funny, I, believe it or not, I wasn't a particularly harsh self-critic. People assume that I must have been a harsh self-critic. I had a very loving mother. She, I, my mother never criticized me, so I didn't actually have a harsh inner critical voice. I found it transformed me by its ability to support myself in times of struggle. So um, I think that's the part that I really find is I just listen to my inner compassionate self and let it support me constantly.
1: You've really internalize it.
2: internalized it? I've internalized it,
1: yeah. I mean, this is where even when you mm-hmm. say the healthy neurotic, yeah. I mean, I, I really do think the, as I reflect more and more of the ordinary suffering yeah. that all of us have the critic or I, I often think of it as the threat system.
2: Yes, we do.
1: And yeah. and learning to notice it and turn it down brings more happiness. That's
2: right. By the way, just because I don't have a harsh inner critic doesn't mean shame doesn't come up. And that actually was a, a big prompt for me. i had just gotten out of a divorce when I learned about self-compassion, and it really helped me hold the shame because shame is just—it's so much deeper. Even than inner criticism—it's just you know—it's just—it's so deep and when i found something that could help me hold shame, shame and not be debilitated by it that was amazingly powerful
1: it is uh the the so there is a soften soothe allow and a soften sue the for shame yes so when i first uh found you and christopher i think before I'd actually taken the, just the training myself, uh-huh. I was so enamored, I'm still so enamored with the soft of the Lao. Uh-huh. I started uh, trying to get my students here to do it uh-huh. and uh, then started giving them extra credit if they would do it uh-huh. and still do uh-huh. four, t- four times a week for a month wow. and got, for the people that did it, extraordinary results, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially for beginning clinicians, Mm -hmm. because shame and Mm self-criticism comes up so much as you're training people sitting in the chair. Mm -hmm. And when you can work with it and put it to the side, it makes being a therapist so much easier and more fun, and you become a better therapist.
2: Is that your, what's your favorite practice to use? Is that it, or do you use another? Is another one more?
1: The, the, I use the self-compassion break a lot. Okay. The, 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 the the practice I've been. Which, for
2: those of you who don't know, is basically just a formulaic way of using the three elements of self-compassion. Right. Mindfulness, common humanity, and kindness, Right.
1: And so there's a way of doing it very quickly, of tuning into suffering, and, bringing some kindness and the element of the common humanity. You know, I'm um, in the middle of dealing with Sears, who uh, I have, a we, we have a dishwasher and, and which is broken and we had the five-year warranty and it's been three years and they said because it's rust, it's not covered. So this week I've spent like seven hours on the phone. Talking to Talking And I can feel my threat system yeah, just yeah. go into overdrive every time. Yeah. And um, can I notice it and work with the nervous system? Mm-hmm. But then the common humanity. Can I think of the person on the other end of the phone yeah. and think of what they're going through? Mm-hmm. And can I think of all the people in the world bumping up against something that's mm-hmm. unfair and they're impotent? Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how impactful yeah. it, it, it is for me yeah. Yeah. so I would say but but I and and the other one is the values is is re- refining more and more what my intention is in a particular circumstance
2: yeah. yeah compassion really operates at the elm at the level of intention practice of intention, intention. setting your intention and then you don't know what's going to happen you set your intention let it go and see what arises.
1: So, so as you are part of this movement or protocol or evidence-based treatment, I guess it's. Uh, I read somewhere that it is now an evidence-based treatment. Is w- where where is it the most challenging between the politics and the people and the balance?
2: Yeah. So. Um, hmm. There are two areas, I guess as an academic, but the thing I've been struggling with li- lately, the last couple years, and it's funny, it's something I'm really having to work with, is you know, I created a scale to measure self-compassion back in 2003, and it really is the only scale of self-compassion out there, so it's been used in you know, hundreds and hundreds of studies. And so there's been... I could debate about the factor structure, the self-compassion scale. In, in my model, there's six factors. There's the positive and negative, the kindness of self-judgment, common humanity, isolation, mindfulness, over-identification. And then some, I think it was actually, I think Paul Gilbert started the ball rolling. He really didn't like the idea that positive and negative affect were measured in the same scale because he sees them as two separate systems. And I see self-compassion as a system that includes the balance of the positive and negative. You might even say, if you want to talk about the nervous system, I see self-compassion as a state of balance between parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system activity. And there's actually research now that shows this. So part of being in a self-compassionate state of mind is there's less in sympathetic reactivity? Yes. There's less in self judgment. There's less in you know. There's we know there's less in cortisol. Less less you know the HP whatever it is in this life that they measure, right? Um, but for some reason, people got it in their heads that actually they shouldn't be separate. And then they did an, they did some factor analyses at the scale, and they were finding that it wasn't really holding up the, the original model, and it got so bad. Because at the point where people were having a hard time publishing with the scale using a total score. Um, Until finally, so then I had, the last thing I wanted to do was another like big scale validation paper. I'm so much more interested in the practice. That stuff really, it's, well, it bores me, but I guess I also have a fighting spirit. So there was part of me that's like, okay, you want to battle? So we just published this big paper with four different populations, Buddhist, clinical population, community, students, and we found a new form of way of analyzing it which shows that 90% of the variance in item responses can be explained by a general self-compassion factor A, a total score. So it is a system. Um, And so, you know, but but there's like so many papers now on the factor structure of the scale. And I guess the reason I care is for me, you have to see it as a system because it's experienced as a system. I see these elements coming together, and you know, it's like you can't leave some of them out.
1: You no, know, so I thought when you were going to say I care, I thought you were talking about the research part. And no, I, I
2: care about the research. I'm just, I just, I would be more interested in like doing research interventions. But
1: I mean, I, I, I am much more a clinician than researcher, yeah. and. I, I have great appreciation to the researchers of the world, yeah. because it is amazing when people come in and you can point out here studies about this and here studies yeah, about is. this. It helps it, a lot. It, it helps lessen yeah. the skepticism. It does, yeah. And then they can evaluate it on its own. Yeah. I, I I very much reflect a lot and include a lot in my teaching. Mm-hmm. I, I start a lot of the meditations with seeing if you can notice the threat system uh-huh. and invite it to turn down yeah. and, and turn up the caregiving system. Okay. And just that practice is yeah. so impactful over time.
2: Yeah, and so that's why I guess it was part of when people are saying just use the positive items, throw out the negative items. Like, no, you're not getting it. That's not the whole picture. That's half the picture. But um, And then the other thing I think was a little challenging for me, although I think it's better, is that um, self-compassion had to fight for its place at the table a little bit with all the mindfulness interventions. There were some people, I think it's changing, who felt like it's already mindfulness already. Why why do you have this newfangled name for it? It's already here. And uh... I was a little bit surprised I think at first that uh, maybe I wasn't as accepted with as open arms as I thought it would be because I because I love my I'm a mindfulness practitioner this is my home crowd you know um, it was very but there were some pretty big names who I won't mention names who had a bit of a problem with it um, that it's already in mindfulness um, and so that was a little surprising to me um, and also.
1: The kind of turf stuff?
2: Yeah, like, is is there, well, not even so much turf, but is there a difference between mindfulness and self-compassion? What is mindfulness anyway? I remember I was at a conference on this topic, and I was like, guys, let's call them Joe and Bob. It doesn't matter. These are just words. It's about the experience, you know, and you know the experience. You can feel the experience, and we're pointing to an experience, and in something that, that... Language is just like a second-order representation. Why are you getting so hot and bothered about this? I actually said that at at a conference. It didn't go over well. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you guys so bothered about this? I think, well, because it's very serious stuff. Oh, sorry. Okay.
1: I have actually seen, and it's very anecdotal, Mm -hmm. but a number of people that have taken the MBSR Mm -hmm. and get I think it's as the tradition. Okay,
2: MBSR may have something to do with this. <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> translated from the the uh, traditions in th- Southeast Asia yeah. to the United States, mm-hmm. that that their sense of mindfulness is that it's dry. Yeah. And uh, a number of people, because I uh, do a lot of retreats at Spirit Rock, mm-hmm. and for ten years would do a. Uh, month-long retreats, mm-hmm. and, and even practitioners there, one in particular would get really, and then she went and did the five-day training with you. This was a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and came back and said her retreat was completely different the next year, mm-hmm. that there's, there's some way of bringing in the softness yeah. and the heart that for a lot of people gets taken out, yeah. and that's so sad to me.
2: And for, a lot, for some people, it, d- it doesn't. Some people, they just sit down, and they with their experience, and their heart opens, and it's all there, and there's no difference. But I would say probably maybe for the majority of people, for at least half the people, the intentional cultivation of the heart quality... You know whether it's with loving kindness, but so the thing about loving kindness meditation too is I used to hate loving kindness meditation, I really did. I, I, I was one of those people, there, I wanted the silence, I liked the insight, and it's like la 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 la. Because I couldn't connect with it, I think because the suffering wasn't there necessarily, it wasn't like part of it, right? Uh-huh. So for me, I just couldn't connect with it. It wasn't until I connected with it in the presence of suffering which is compassion as opposed to loving kindness so, so they were just too abstract for me you know right. maybe be well maybe be happy or may you know may I be healthy maybe safe I, I just i mean now i connect with it a lot but at first i couldn't connect with it it just kind of left me hanging there especially the self-loving kindness yes. bit um, and then when i started practicing when pain was present i have so much shame in this moment and then, when I just, you know, can I hold myself? So give myself loving kindness in the present, the shame, and ex- it was experienced as compassion. That was the hook for me that the loving kindness didn't do so much. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, and, so. and you're getting at the part, this is mm-hmm. like in some ways IFS, mm-hmm. but really bringing together psychology and Buddhism yes. that you can direct the energy of loving kindness towards places where we're wounded, yes. or towards difficult emotions. And I find that skill so life-changing for people.
2: I think you're right. I think in traditional Buddhist spiritual practices, um, the goal is not really to heal suffering. The goal is awakening, a beautiful goal, a wonderful goal. But the practices aren't really designed To do things like how do I work with shame, or how do I work with my anger, or how do I work with my feeling of failure or inferiority? All the practices are designed, you know, to cultivate these mind states so you can have insight and and awaken. Um, And so I think, personally, I think psychology has helped enrich Buddhism because Buddhism can be a bit dry. And you know, I've got a lot of friends. They can sit a 20-day silent vipassana meditation retreat, and they're Just use it as an excuse to space out, to space out, or to not confront their issues. And well, there's no self anyway. And it's like, well, something's happening here. (laughs) (laughs) You don't call it a self, but something's happening here. You're like intellectualizing it away, you know.
1: Well, I'm just thinking about it as you're talking about it. uh, But really, it was my own training as a psychologist Mm -hmm. that I just naturally adapted it.
2: Uh, uh And I
1: actually had uh, Jack Cornfield who said at the end of a retreat, he wanted me to spend the next year just doing loving-kindness practice. Oh, uh-huh. and, and it was really transformative to stay with it. But a lot of it, to get the juice, is I would know how to direct it.
2: That's right. So it wouldn't be these abstract phrases. You'd actually use the energy of loving-kindness. Right. So when loving-kindness holds pain, it is compassion. That's right. kind of the definition of, well, another definition of compassion. Yeah.
1: So yeah. where, where, where do you see all of this going? Uh, how, how, many, how many teachers are there now?
2: I think there's like 700. But mm-hmm. probably in the next two years, there will be more than that in China alone. Um, the number one best-selling author in China um, has written a book. She's, she's, a, she's a total zealot of mindful self-compassion. Um, And she's like training hundreds of people a year. So I think it'll get bigger in China first, believe it or not. But uh, yeah, so probably 700, 800 teachers we've trained. I don't know. I just have a very strong intuitive feeling that something is afoot. Certainly something is afoot in our society. And you might say that some of the masculine energies um, are really showing themselves clearly. Right. And I won't name names, but, you know, so that thing about being the best and competition and, and it's a very masculine, you know, the down, the, the, not the beautiful masculine, but the downside of masculine. And I think that there needs to be a strong rising of the feminine. Of the compassion, but fierce compassion—not like, oh, so, you know, right. oh, it's okay, darling. You didn't mean it when you hit me. That's not compassion. <laughs> you know, I'm talking about the like, right? Strong, empowered female taking power, action, taking action. But from a place of love and from a place of inclusiveness and a place of connectedness, and I think the world needs it desperately. Um, and I think there is going to be a compassion movement. I think mindfulness is very connected to that. But when mindfulness is practiced in a more dry way, it can be a little intellectual. And I don't want to say it's masculine. You know, it's, it is not juicy, dripping feminine the way compassion is. Sometimes it is. But, you know, masculine, it can be just a little bit spacious awareness. You know, if you think of the masculine as the emptiness and the feminine as the form, you need both. And I think sometimes with the mindfulness movement, there is too much emphasis on the space right. and not enough emphasis on the, I know I'm feeling, this is CIS, I can't believe I'm talking about this in public, but I know you guys understand okay. me. <laughs> right uh, Yeah, so there's something about the balancing of masculine and feminine energies in the world that feels like it's happening. And I think we have a role to play. I'm not sure exactly what. But we either do this or we die, I, you know, it's yes. kind of that stark. That stark. So, yeah. yeah. So we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Along those themes, I feel like every person in this room, um, there, there's, there is an energy arising that comes from, I think, this marriage of the East and Western psychology, And now that the compassion has come to balance the mindfulness, I just really feel that, again, something is afoot. And I think it's going to be the personal responsibility of every single one of us to heal ourselves in order to be able to help heal the world. You know, we have to do this work. It's it's not optional anymore. It's not optional.
1: I, I I have seen it as working with and supporting a lot of people in the last few months when there's been more yeah. turmoil yes. and how to support people rather than in the reactive. Yes. They can yeah. find the reflective, grounded place that leads to action. Okay. And this split, well, if I just go inside and settle, then I'll won't be motivated and so this balance of finding deep motivation to take action but from the right place so that you don't burn out from
2: the right place and so that's not a reaction to what's happening but it's a transformation of what's happening I think that's really what's being called for as a as a society Um, you know but it's really amazing that the if I mean I don't know how you quantify these things but the level of consciousness right now in, let's say, just the United States, but all around the world. It's probably the highest level of consciousness by far ever. It just doesn't get the the coverage.
1: And um, I want to say thank you Ah. so much for your contribution and that your efforts to turn towards your own suffering Mm. uh, are helping so many others free from their suffering. So thank you.
2: Thank you. I'll, I will take that in I'll try to take that in. Thank you. Yeah.
0: You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS public programs and performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website ciis.edu slash podcast.